What an amazing fellowship that we share. And that's what we're going to be looking into this morning. But as I was looking out upon the mass of humanity here this morning and seeing all of you interacting, communicating, that's the tip of the iceberg. It's wonderful, and it's a blessing, and it is so uh, amazing to see people coming together, interacting, people from all walks of life, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, connecting your lives, beginning to connect your lives together. We're going to be studying for the next several weeks the book of Philippians, and one of the major themes in Philippians is joy. And I'm, I'm, I'm theming this study, Finding Joy in the Journey. Because really, we're all on a journey. From that moment that we accept Christ into our hearts, and we begin to walk with Him, we're on a journey through this life, trying to work out, the Bible says, our salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to have a relationship with other believers of like precious faith. It's a journey. And within that journey, God intends, as we discussed last week, for us to have some joy. And the word joy in in, in the Greek means exultant gladness or euphoric peace. Now, if that does not describe your life, that's okay. That's okay. Because we all go through those seasons in our lives where joy is not the preeminent fruit of the Spirit that we are exercising. But it should, at regular times, bubble up in your life. You see, joy, here's here's my definition of joy. This comes out of Greg's dictionary. Joy, biblical joy, is the deep and abiding awareness of our connectedness to God deep and abiding awareness of our connectedness to God. And that connectedness carries us through the most difficult of circumstances. It's easy to be joyful when everything around us, the circumstances situate themselves so that it's all wonderful. That's really, that's easy. True joy, the deepest and most meaningful uh, demonstration and experience of joy comes when we are aware that God is with us. God is working in us. God is welcoming us into his presence. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And in chapter 1, the first 11 verses of Philippians, I find that joy here is expressed in fellowship. In fellowship. Now, as I mentioned, we have two types of connections when we become Christians. The first and most important is our connection to God. Because the Bible says that we have been walking this earth really, truly dead spiritually in our sins and trespasses. Alive in one respect, physically, but truly, in a spiritual sense, separated from God. And so we come into a relationship with Him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe and trust that Jesus died for our sins, and we are born again, the Bible says, and we have a new connection with God, a fellowship with Him. But likewise, and this is 
new also. We come into, the Bible says we are born into, baptized into the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, we become sons and daughters in a large, large family. We have a new set of relationships that enter into our experience that we never had before. And these relationships truly are eternal relationships. I'm looking out at your faces here this morning. (laughs) And I'm recognizing that I'm going to spend eternity with you. Now, for some, that might not be such an awesome thought. But the reality remains. We spend eternity together because we are part of the body of Christ. And within that fellowship, there is a lot that happens. I want to describe for you a little bit what fellowship is. The word in the Greek, fellowship, is koinonia. And interestingly, it's really not a word that talks about what happens here for those brief few moments on Sunday morning or spending time drinking coffee together. Now, those are perhaps aspects of fellowship, but koinonia, the the word actually is a commercial term. And what it means is to literally have skin in the game, to have an investment in something alongside a partnership with someone. In verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Some of your translations will say because of your fellowship. But really, partnership probably is a, a more accurate term because we have an investment in together the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, one another's lives. What happens to you in your life matters to me. It's important to me because it affects me. We are tangibly tied together in partnership. And there's great joy that we can find in that fellowship. Now, Paul, I want you to stop and think about two things as Paul is writing this epistle to the Philippians. First, Paul's introduction to the Philippians came under the most difficult of circumstances. Paul was arrested by the Philippian authorities for uh, releasing a young slave girl who was demon-possessed. And Paul ended up, along with his companion Silas, in what is called the third prison, which is essentially the darkest, deepest prison that existed. There was no light, very little, if any, oxygen, full of human refuse, It was a terrible place. And Paul and Silas, after having been beaten with whips and placed in this third prison, at midnight began to sing praises unto God. Again, joy expressed because of an awareness of that connectedness that they had to God. And as a result, the earth shook, the jail was broken open, Paul and Silas were released. They led the Philippian jailer to faith. 
And so Paul's introduction to the Philippians was under great hardship. But as he writes this epistle to the Philippians, we must understand that Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He is chained under the authority of the Roman authorities. He has no freedom to move about. And yet, joy emerges from this epistle. Paul, as he writes to the Philippians, five times references joy. Nine times talks about rejoicing in circumstances or in the Lord. So again, it's not the situation that surrounds us that defines our joy at church. It is our connectedness to God. And I'm going to suggest to you one another. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's take a look at this. In the first 11 verses, see all of the examples of fellowship that exist. In the very first line, Paul and Timothy. They are joined together, it says, as servants of Jesus Christ. And then to all God's holy people in Jesus Christ at Philippi, along with the overseers and deacons. So he joins all of the people together. He joins the two words, grace and peace, together in fellowship. And again, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So several examples in those first two verses of a joining, a partnership, a coming together. And Paul is not doing this haphazardly. He intends for the Philippians to understand the fellowship that exists in the body of Christ, both vertically and horizontally. Paul loved the Philippians, and he wanted them to know that this walk that they were engaging in was one that they must join together in. Stop and think about this for just a moment. What was the early Philippian church comprised of? Well, first, it was comprised of a lady named Lydia, who was a seller of purple, which indicated she was a well-to-do merchant. She sold purple cloth from Thyatira. Typically, those people were very well-to-do. So Lydia was probably a wealthy woman. She was the first person that Paul was introduced to in Philippi that came to faith. The second person was a slave girl, demon-possessed, who Paul delivered in the name of Jesus Christ. She came into the church. And thirdly, a middle-class Philippian jailer who was probably a Roman citizen, And so you had this mix of this very wealthy woman, this very impoverished slave girl, and this sort of middle-class Roman blue-collar guy. What a diversity within that church. And yet Paul is telling them, you've got to join together. You've got to find strength in the fellowship, the partnership that you have with one another. Also, that you have with God. And I want to read a passage to you to sort of drive home the importance of us joining together. It's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and uh, probably as well as any passage of Scripture, talks about the importance of not being a lone wolf as a Christian, not being a person who decides, I can do this on my own without any other. Listen to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, 
If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So again, from the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the notion that we need one another. God has designed it so. In fact, it's, it follows after the very trinity of God. In the first verse of John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So from the very beginning, the, the triune nature of God, the fellowship, the partnership that existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is subsequently carried out in the body of his church, us. We have a partnership together. Now, the life that we have in the church is not a life that is designed to be lived in isolation. If you want to equate it to a sport, it's a lot like basketball. In the 60s, and now this is going to date me, but 60s basketball, there was a man named Wilt Chamberlain, an extraordinary talent when it came to basketball. Seven foot one, one of the very first really big men who also could dribble well, move about the court, and play multiple positions. I saw a, a an old black and white video of him playing when he was in college at the University of Kansas. And th- imagine this. This is a six, or excuse me, a seven foot one center, and he's dribbling down the court, running the fast break. And he takes the ball, throws it behind his back to another player who goes in for a layup. This is in 1956-57. Unheard of. The talent that he had. He Scored 100 points in a game. One season averaged 50 points a game. In one game, set the record, 55 rebounds. Probably will never, ever be matched. Extraordinary talent. And yet, in the 13 years that he played in the NBA, he only won two championships. And really, the the second championship that he won was not in large measure due to him. He was at the twilight of his career. It was really largely due. He was on the Los Angeles Laker team at that time. The other players on the team, he did not play a primary role. But during that same period of time, there was another center, a gentleman named Bill Russell, who was smaller than Chamberlain, not as extraordinarily talented as Chamberlain, who played for the Boston Celtics. But he integrated himself into the team concept with Boston. He played a powerful defense. He was a rebounder that was, for his height, actually rather extraordinary. And he integrated within the team concept in Boston. And in his 13 years in the NBA, 11 of those years, Boston won the championship. And honestly, church, that is how it works for us. If we're going to be out there trying to be a a star Christian, not allowing 
the body of Christ to, to play a role in our lives. We are going to be like Chamberlain. We may have some moments, but really there's not going to be any championships. The goal and the purpose of us coming together is not going to be met as it is intended to be. But when we come together, when we join in a team concept and a process that allows everyone's gifts to emerge and we take our role in the body of Christ as it is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 amazing things can happen yes some of us are ears some of us are noses some of us are hands some of us are feet but Paul said how ridiculous for the for the ear to say to the hand I want to be like you I want to do your job, even though there's really not much an ear can do to grip. But the ear is very good at hearing. So we play our roles. We come into fellowship and we join together and great things happen. So fellowship, very, very important concept. Very much connected to God's will for your life. We'll talk about that in, in a few moments. So Paul's writing here. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Isn't that interesting? That Paul says he is imprisoned in a Roman jail. He has no freedom of movement. And yet, everything that he has done, and we'll see this in, in, in the next chapter, that because of Paul's chains, he was able to preach the gospel. And Paul says all of Caesar's household has come to understand and to know about Jesus Christ. So the circumstances of his life served to further the gospel and the Philippians were still connected to him in sharing the gospel. They all shared in God's grace with him. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. So Paul had this deep, deep affection for the Philippians. It says that he actually loved them with the love of Christ Jesus. The, 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 the term there actually is from his deepest being. The, the literal term is from his kidneys. In the Greek, that's what it would read. From my kidneys, I love you. Now, that's not something I suggest any of you saying to anyone else. But in the Greek culture, that's where they believed the deepest emotions emerged from. So he said, from my very bowels, I love you with the love of Christ. What created that in Paul's life? It was the Holy Spirit that gave him that deep affection. Not a topical, not a superficial affection for the Philippians, but a deep affection that mirrored the love of Christ. It was because of the fellowship he understood that they shared with him in the gospel, in the life that God had given to him. There was a, a deep connection there. And he says, whatever happens to me, Understand that you're in it with me. 
And whatever happens to you, understand this, that I'm in it with you. I am praying for you with joy, with a great exultation. When I think of you, I remember you and I pray for you with joy because we are in koinonia. We have come together and our lives are irrevocably, irrevocably joined together. We all have skin in this game. And he was confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God is at work in us, through us, and for us. He's at work in us because he is transforming our lives. He's given us the, literally the very Holy Spirit of God to dwell in us as new creatures in Christ. And so everything about us, the Bible says, has become new. Now, we don't always think of ourselves in that way. We don't always think of ourselves walking down the street as, I'm a new creature in Christ. You know, walk up to the, the person at the grocery store, I'm a new creature in Christ. That's really probably not what most of us do. But it's true. It's true. And he who began that good work in you is also working through you to reach others with that salvation message, with the message that God loves them and that God is for them. God wants them to experience that newness of life that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 6. So God is at work shaping us into the very image of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the deal. Most shaping comes, if if you're a sculptor, how does that shaping occur? It occurs through pressure, doesn't it? It occurs through putting pressure on the clay. Or, if it's, if it's a hard rock, it results through chipping that occurs against the rock in order to shape and to form the substance into the sculptor or the potter's concept of what they want that material to be. Well, here's the reality. And the Bible has said this in Jeremiah. God is the potter. We are the clay. He said that you are his poema, his masterwork. And he's at work in your life, chipping at it, shaping it, putting pressure on it. And the reality of that, church, that you must understand, and this is where joy comes from, this is where that deep abiding awareness of your connectedness to God comes in, is it happens through trial and through tribulation. It happens through persecution and difficulty that you are shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know exactly what trials, what tribulations you are going through. You know, just existing, just living in this fallen world, I can guarantee you, you're going to experience some difficult things. Sickness, illness, Perhaps the loss of a job. People often ask me, why is God allowing this? And, and my answer is, is usually, I, I don't have a clue, except for that he's shaping me. And that we live in a fallen world where bad things happen. But here's the, 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 the reality of what's going on, that within that, within that 
difficult circumstance, within that persecution or that, that spiritual battle that, that occurs when Satan, your enemy, is opposing you and you are having to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, in the midst of that, God is shaping your life. I've watched Bill and Sandy Dallas over the course of the last year just go through extraordinary difficulties. And I'm only calling them out because I happen to, to, to have been involved in, in some of that. Many of the rest of you are going through like circumstances. But a double knee replacement for Sandy. And, and then she falls down the stairs and breaks her neck and her wrists. And in the midst of all that, Bill almost cuts his hand off. What's going on here, God? And yet, I have to tell you that though there have been moments that the two of them have struggled, absolutely, have been discouraged, you bet. The joy that has been maintained in their lives through this. So I see some of you nodding your head because you know what I'm talking about. You've been around them. You've seen it. The joy that has been maintained in their life because of their connection to God, because of their understanding, not in full completeness, absolutely not, but their understanding and submission to the reality that God is shaping us through this. God is at work in our lives through these trials, through these tribulations, building in us the character of Christ, a faith that trusts Him no matter what. And again, I could call out many of you who are here this morning because you're going through similar types of things. But in the midst of that, rejoice, Paul says. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials and tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work. What is its perfect work? It's the character of Christ. It's the realization that you are not alone. That there is purpose and meaning as you are going through this. And the person who began that work in you, the God that started the work in you, He will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. You can absolutely trust Him to do that. And one of the things, one of the ways in which He will get you to that final day is through fellowship in the body of Christ. Steve Morehouse, when he gave his final message, said something, me, or said something to the congregation that will stick with me, I believe, for the rest of my life. He stood on this pulpit and he said, love the church of God. Because it's the church of God through whom we are going to be buoyed up we are going to be prayed for. We're going to be strengthened. We're going to be challenged. We need fellowship. And in that fellowship, we will grow stronger. Two are better than one. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So what's the application here? What are we applying to our lives? Well, first, don't be Wilt Chamberlain. I mean, you, you may be the most amazing Christian out there, but if you try to do it in isolation, you ultimately are going to fail. You ultimately will not achieve everything that God intends for you. Don't try to be a solo Christian. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to be in church every Sunday, but you should regularly be in church. You should never forsake 
the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. The writer of Hebrews said, you've got to come together and spur one another on to love and to good works. We need each other. So embrace koinonia. Embrace the concept that your life matters to someone else. Now, Satan will tell you the opposite. Satan will tell you, you know, no one really cares. No one really understands. If you go to church, it's only going to be a bunch of people who don't really love you and people who don't really understand you. And, you know, there's all those messages that we get. Take captive those thoughts and come together in the body of Christ and embrace that partnership that we have together. You need to be here. And you know what? I need you. I need each one of you in my life. In myriad ways. I'm I'm talking about this not just as an example. In reality, I need you in my life. And whether you like it or not, you probably need me. We need one another. So embrace that. Understand that that is how God intends it to be. That's how it is in the Trinity. We're just replicating his life. Paul prayed for the the Philippians that their love might abound in knowledge and discernment. So, he is praying for them not just to have this sort of sloppy agape. You know, where, oh, I love everybody, and uh, Chris calls it unicorns and rainbows. That's really not the kind of love that we're talking about. We're talking about a love that is based in knowledge and discernment, experience. There are things in this life that we need to set aside as excellent. In Philippians 4.8, Paul says that we are to do that. We are to approve those things that are excellent. In other words, superior. And that's the kind of love Paul wants us to abound in. I met Christy in October 1983. And I started proposing to her in December of 1983. And it took me till. February of 1984, before she said yes. I had some work to do, but eventually she gave in. I didn't know her that long, but I knew that there was a love. I knew that there was something about this woman that I loved. But over the course of the last 33 years, I've studied her face. I've listened to her voice. I've watched her in action. I can see her from a distance in a group of people, and I know exactly which head bopping about is hers. The love I had for her in 1983 that initiated a string of proposals was love, but it's not the love I have today that is based in knowledge and discernment and built on experience. That's what Paul wants us to abound in, a growing knowledge of who Jesus is and an expression of love. And so the final takeaway from today is 
to practice love based in a mature understanding of the Word of God. I want to read a couple of stories to you and we'll conclude with this. Newspaper columnist and minister George Crane tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred towards her husband. I do not only want to get rid of him, she said, but I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. He said, go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. And with revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful, beautiful. Will he ever be surprised? And she did this with great enthusiasm, acting as if she loved him. And for two months, she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. And when she didn't return, Crane called her and said, Are you ready to go through with the divorce now? Divorce? She exclaimed, Never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion, and the ability to love was established, not so much by a fervent promise, but by experience. C.S. Lewis agrees with this. He writes, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. As soon as we do this, we will find one of the great secrets of life. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. But if you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. So we want to abound in love based in knowledge and discernment. And we need one another to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fellowship we share, the koinonia with one another. Our lives are inextricably joined together by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that when challenges come up in the body of Christ, I've said many times that this is a laboratory for love. Sometimes the experiments go awry. Sometimes they work out well. But Lord, help us to abound in that love and to experience the joy of the Lord, which is our strength in one another. As you begin the work in us, so you will complete it until we all take on the character of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and we'll conclude with that old hymn. What a fellowship, what a joy divine.